Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12, and a very exciting area of Scripture. Um, I would would, uh, say that this is probably one of my favorite areas of Scripture, um, because as we go through this, um, it just reminds me that how God himself said there's no one like him, and that no one knows the end from the beginning, like he does. And so we're going to be able to see some things here that you just go, wow, this has to be God. This has to be God. And, uh, and it should give you confidence in what you believe and, and trusting uh, the word of God that you have before you. And so there's no guesswork in what Passover means here and what God is trying to show us what Passover means. God's words makes it very clear that the Passover speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist would point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul would say, just in case there's any confusion, For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Peter goes on to explain why we should live holy lives when he says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, why would he say that? Because that's exactly he's quoting from Exodus chapter 12 and how the Passover lamb has to be without blemish, without spot. In addition to all that, the book of Revelation has several references to Jesus being the lamb of God. That title is speaking of the Passover lamb. In Revelation 5, 6, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it has been slain. Speaking of the Passover lamb. Revelation 5, 11, Then I looked, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You have that Passover language again. We see it again in Revelation 7, verse 9. We see it in Revelation 12, verse 11. We see it in Revelation 13, verse 8. We see it in in chapter 14, verse 1, 15, verse 3, 17, verse 14, 19, uh, verse 9, 21, verse 22. Also makes reference of Jesus being the Passover lamb. Paul also tells us that in the Old Testament, there's types, there's pictures that point to the person of Jesus, all through the Old Testament, we've seen this and we've gone through some of those. And so in Colossians 2.16, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, meaning a feast such as Passover, or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? There is shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All those things, they pointed to Jesus. And that would include the Passover as As one of the feasts. And so all the feasts, the rituals, the Sabbath, they all speak of Jesus, the Messiah. All feasts and rituals and the Sabbaths are pictures, foreshadowings, types of the future Messiah, which is Jesus. And so the connection to Jesus being the Passover lamb is overwhelming. It is abundantly clear in Scripture that it speaks of Jesus. 
And so when we go over the instructions for the Passover in Exodus 12, you're going to see this picture of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. So let's begin here in chapter 12 of Exodus. Now, the first thing we're going to see here with the Passover is that it changes Israel's calendar. Right here, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this month that they're going to sacrifice, the Passover lamb, is going to change Israel's calendar where it's now the beginning of months. From now on, this month was to be remembered as the beginning of Israel as a nation of a people before God. It's now going to start with this month. Now, since the Passover lamb is a type of Jesus, it's interesting to me that Jesus' birth in the world also changed the calendar for the Gentiles. One can say that the Passover lamb changed the calendar for the Jews. Jesus coming in the world actually changed the calendar for the world. From the moment that he was born later on, it was adopted A.D. Everything was A.D. Okay, now people always think that means after death. It does not. A.D. is Anno Domini, means it's Latin for year of our Lord. It actually speaks of his birth. Okay, actually speaks of his birth. And so now, from the 4th century on, people always refer to it as A.D., Anno Domini which means the year of our Lord. And it wasn't until about 60, 70 years ago that secular society didn't like that. You know why? Because it reminded them of Jesus. So then they started using the common era and before the common era and things like that. But just so you know, for about 1,500 years, it was always Anno Domini. And so you have a changing of the calendar for the Jews. And then when Jesus was born, you had a changing of the calendar for the rest of the world. Isn't that amazing? I think it's very amazing. I think it's interesting that these things, that, uh, that the Passover as well as Jesus' birth changed the calendars, the very instrument we use to analyze history. But it shouldn't be to anybody's surprise because history is really his story. I would suggest this is because both are very significant and foundational in knowing the creator of the heavens and the earth as well as space and time. The word month that is being used here is a Hebrew word, kodesh, and it means new moon is what that means. It means new moon. The coming deliverance from Egypt is very significant that God tells the children of Israel to remake their calendar. The new year will begin with the new moon of this month which shows Israel's now on a lunar calendar. The old day, thus the old day ends at dusk and the new day begins after dusk. This new month is to be a reminder of what God did in redeeming them, bringing out a bond of Egypt in the wilderness to serve him. Now, what month is this? Well, actually, it's the next chapter in chapter 13 that tells us. In chapter 13 of Exodus, in verse 3, it says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. Abib in the Hebrew is actually Aviv. Aviv. 
It means in the ear of the grain or the ear of corn or the greening of crops. Well, when does that happen? Spring. Happens in the spring. This is the month of ear forming, of greening of crops, of things that grow green. Later on, after the Babylonian captivity, this month, Aviv, is, the name is changed to Nisan. But Aviv is the equivalent to our late March, early April. The new calendar of the month of Aviv begins with a feast, a feast of Passover. The feast of Passover marks a new beginning for the Jews, the Lord freeing the Jews from the bondage of Egypt. And when this happens, it is a time of new beginnings, a new time in their newfound freedom in God. And it's the same today when the Lord frees you from the bondage of sin through the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross, guess what? It is a time of new beginnings for us as well. This is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. One of my favorite verses in, 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 in the scriptures. Because it reminds us that it doesn't matter what you were before. If you come to Christ, he's going to change you. And he's telling you from the moment you receive Christ, the old has passed away. That will never come up before you again. Others might bring it up, but God will never bring it up again. And he is declaring to you, you are a new creation. How exciting that is. A new creation. Holy Spirit comes inside of you, and now God wants to change you. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. You're still going to stumble along the way. The, the old self is, is still, you know, your flesh is still in the habit of doing those old things. But little by little, you'll have victory in the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, and you will become that new creation. But God calls you that new creation of what you are going to be, but he says it in the past tense because he's so sure you're going to get there. So awesome, so wonderful. And it will be this Passover feast that will be a yearly reminder of that spiritual foundation of the nation of Israel and the importance of remembering the God who brought their nation into existence and redeemed them with a mighty hand. And how did he redeem them? The word redeem means to be purchased back or to be bought. How did God do that? By the blood of the lamb. How were you redeemed? By the blood of the lamb. Jesus himself. Verse 3 of chapter 12 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. The word lamb here in the Hebrew is say. It means young sheep or goat. Now, this is also confirmed by verse 5, as we'll see here in a moment. But verse 4 says, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall, you, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, the rabbi said that a, a, a lamb is really good for about 10 people, 10 to 15 people. Okay, That's how much a lamb should really, a whole lamb should be able to feed. And so they would say that, you know, um, that you should feed up to 10, to somewhere between 10 and 20 people, but over that, you should then get another lamb. Okay, so it could possibly have three families involved that are eating uh, one lamb. 
And this lamb is to be chosen on the 10th of the month. Each family or several families are to choose a lamb on the 10th of the month. It's interesting to me how Jesus came to Jerusalem. Where? On the 10th of Aviv. And so remember I had mentioned um, that uh, by the time of Jesus' day, it it would have been called Nisan. But in John 12, verse 1, it says, Then six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Well, Passover is on the 14th. So six days before that would be the 9th. Okay? And so verse 12 then goes on to say, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... That would mean he came on the 10th. Jesus arrives on Lamb Selection Day. And I believe that's God's way of saying, I choose him. I choose him. Then on the exact day that the Lamb is selected, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Verse 5 of chapter 12 says, Your Lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So the lamb should be without blemish, a male. This sacrifice of the Lord has to be a perfect as a male lamb or goat. There could be no defect, couldn't be sick, could not have a limp. It had to be a healthy young male lamb or goat, a year old. Now, again, you can take it from the sheep or the goats. Again, speaks of Jesus. Jesus is a male. He also is young and in his prime. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless and pure. This is why, as I read earlier, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, or spot. Now, I want you to go over here to Matthew 22. Now, Matthew 21, you have Jesus entering Jerusalem on the 10th of Aviv. Okay, Matthew 21. In Matthew 22, there's all sorts of teachings that he does. And then the Pharisees and other people come up to him and challenge him to see if, how they can trip him up, show him how he is wrong. What are they doing? They're, they're, they're testing him. The four days that you have the lamb, as you choose the lamb on the 10th, you're there to monitor and make sure and watch that lamb to make sure it is young, that there is no defect, that it doesn't become sick. And so you're watching that lamb for four days. So when you sacrifice a lamb, it is healthy, it is young, it is no defect, it is the perfect sacrifice, okay? So I would submit to you that once he comes in, he's going to be challenged time after time after time. And indeed he is. And so here in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went, plotted how they might entangle him in his talk or try and find fault with him. And they sent him their disciples with the 
The Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true. Teach the way of God and truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. And he said, why do you test me? So he understands he's being tested as well. You hypocrites, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar's the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God's. Mic drop, boom. And look what it says. And when they heard these words, they marveled. And they left him and they went their way. What it doesn't say, but if you look in the Greek, it says, and they went their way going... I mean, they had nothing left to say, you know. And so if you go over here to verse 41, again, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now he tests them. This is what I love. He says, "Uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said, now how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Wow. He's being tested. You know, along the way, they're asking him questions. Well, what is the greatest commandment? You know, all these kinds of things. He just answers everything perfectly because he's God and he is the perfect sacrifice. And so when you go through that before he goes up, it, it proves that. Not only that, but in John 18, 38, when Jesus before Pontius Pilate, he mentions three times, I find no fault in him. In John 18, 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no fault in him at all. Later on in, in, in John 19, verse 6, Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Over and over again, no fault in him. Why? Why is that being said that way? So we could understand he is the Passover lamb and there's no blemish or spot and that he is the perfect sacrifice. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Going back here to chapter 12, in Exodus, it says, And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Twilight, the Hebrew word is erev. And it means dusk or sunset is what that means. Anywhere from 3 p.m. until the sun goes down is twilight. The Passover lamb is killed at dusk. Interesting, this is also when Jesus died. Jesus was killed at the exact time that they were killing the Passover lamb. And Mark 15, verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark 15, 37 then goes on to say, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, breathed his last. The ninth hour is three p.m., the exact time when the Passover lamb was being killed. So Jesus, not only um, uh, coming in on the 10th, but being tested, showing to be the perfect sacrifice, ends up getting sacrificed at the exact same time as the Passover lamb. That's God. Verse 7, Exodus 12, And they shall take some of the blood, Put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. 
once you kill the Passover lamb, you're going to apply the blood on the outside of the door of your house. We're going to see how that's applied here in a moment. Then the family was to eat the Passover lamb inside their house. Verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread. Let's read this this way. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire. Why? Why does it have to be roasted in the fire? With unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? And with bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? And they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. raw. Why? Why can't you eat it raw? Nor boil it with water. Why? It has to be roasted by fire. Why? There's a lot of whys there. Sometimes we're, oh, it's just the way he wanted it done. No, there, there, there's reasons for these things. Okay? And, um, but it's roasting the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall not let none of it remain until morning. Why? And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Why? There's a lot of whys there. A lot of whys. You figure it out. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, I want you to go over here to John chapter 1. Okay, keep your hand there in Exodus. We will be coming back to this. But I think we have to understand a few things here about Jesus. Okay. And in John 1, 1, we read this, Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, who's that? And the word was with God. Okay, the word was with God. And the word was God. Okay, so now we know the word is God. He, oh, it's a person. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. Okay, again, a person. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him, this person was life. And the life was the light of man. Who is this person that was with God and is God and everything was created through him? Verse 14 tells us. And the word became flesh, a human being, dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is he? John made testimony of his. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's God's son. He's God's son. Now, I want you to go over here to John chapter 6. Okay. Jesus is the word. He became flesh. But in verse 35, he also declared this. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes me shall never thirst. Okay. Now I want you to jump over here to verse 47. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. So if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. That believing in him somehow speaks of him being the bread of life, somehow speaks about you eating the bread of life because of your belief in him, because of the words that he is speaking, okay? 
continue on. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. So that bread that you physically ate did not save you. But Jesus, who is the bread of life, and I think I'll be able to show here in a moment that he's speaking metaphorically, spiritually, figuratively, not physically. That's the bread you need to devour in order to have everlasting life. He goes on and he says, this is the bread which came down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. I would submit to you that he is speaking about what he is going to do on the cross, as we'll see here in a moment. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay. And Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. If Jesus was just to stop right there, you'd be going, man, what is going on here? But Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is going to be made clear in Luke 22. Just hold on for a second. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So there's something about Jesus, what he is saying, and the bread that he's speaking about there. That, is, that speaks of eternity as compared to the manna that is said. And so in verse 60, it goes on, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And I grant them, for the place that they're in right now, as they're walking with Jesus, they don't have full understanding at this point. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, meaning to go up to heaven? And it says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are what? Spirit. And they are life. So again, he gives them how he's telling right there, I'm speaking figuratively. It's the words that I'm speaking. Now go to Luke 22, which then makes it abundantly clear. Luke 22, verse 14. At the time of Passover, Jesus is instituting something new. Saying the Passover ends here. And now I'm bringing you something new. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it 
gave it to them, saying, this is my body. Huh. He took real bread, and he said, this is my body, meaning it represents his body. He didn't break off a finger and said, non this for a while. He didn't break off any part of his physical body. Okay? It says he took the bread and said, this is my body. Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we take communion. The bread represents his body. It's not the same bread that came down from heaven. It is the body that repre- it's the bread that represents his body that is about to go to where? The cross. As the ultimate Passover lamb. To do what? To take away their sin. And he goes on. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why? Because the old covenant is now passing away. Here's the new covenant which is shed for you, where? On the cross. That's why those who believe in Jesus and what he did by going to the cross has everlasting life. And it's the words that he says. And so we're supposed to feast upon the word. We're supposed to feast upon the word. And so as we feed upon Jesus and his word, because he is the word of God, and when we feast upon the word of God, we feast upon Jesus, this is the meal that we are to eat today. Is what he has spoken, of what he has done, and if you believe in that, you have eternal life. Now, this Passover meal, why this meal needs to be eaten with unleavened bread, we'll get more into that next week, okay? But suffice to say, for now, leaven always represents sin in Scripture when it's used metaphorically. And I would say that um, when, uh, when it comes to eating of the bread that is unleavened, that speaks of communion or fellowship with God. And since leaven represents sin, you can't have fellowship with God if you're in sin. doesn't mean you don't have relationship. He still died for you. You're still saved. But if you want to walk with him and have fellowship with him, there should not be any ongoing sin in your life. This meal is to be eaten with bitter herbs. Why? Have you ever eaten bitter herbs? You know what? They're bitter And they taste horrible. Okay? So why is it to eat with bitter herbs? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. But most scholars believe it's a reminder of their bitter lives under the rule of the Egyptians. Why? Because in Exodus 1 verse 13, it says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. And so the first time bitter is used in Exodus, it's here in chapter 1, verse 14. The next time it's used, the word bitter is used, it's here in Exodus 12, 8. And so there are some who say you can make that natural connection at that point between, between the first two times it's used in the book of Exodus. So, okay, I, I don't disagree with that. You know, it seems to make sense to me. Now, why did it have to be roasted? Why couldn't you eat it raw or boil it? You can't eat it raw 
Because fire speaks of judgment. Fire speaks of judgment. Oftentimes in Scripture, we see that fire represents judgment. In Leviticus 27, all sin and trespass offerings were judged by fire, burned upon the brazen altar. You cannot eat a lamb that is supposed to point to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. You cannot receive that ultimate sacrifice until that sacrifice has been judged by for your sin. So that's why it has to be roasted. That's why it could not be raw. Okay, why can't you boil it? Boiling seems to be a hard thing and wouldn't be a fun thing to have to go through. Why can't you boil it? Here's why you can't boil it. Because in order to boil a lamb or a goat in a pot, you have to have a pot big enough in which to boil it in. And not every household has a four-by-four pot in which to boil it in. And because their pots are much smaller, when you did boil meat of some sort of carcass that you're going to eat, what did you do? You broke it up. You would break it up. Yet in Exodus 12, 46, we read this about the Passover lamb. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry out any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Not to break the bones. And when you put some meat in a pot, it's because it's already been broken up as as you do that. It's interesting that it was common during crucifixion to break the legs of the victims in order to get them to die quicker. The only way a person could breathe while hanging on the cross is to push up with their legs. So when they broke their legs, they couldn't push up to breathe, and and they would suffocate, and it would hasten death. During Jesus' crucifixion, soldiers broke the legs of the two men next to Jesus, but did not do that with Jesus because Jesus had already given up his spirit and died. John 19, verse 31, it says, Therefore, Because it was preparation day, the bodies should not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, and he... Who has, uh, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. So Jesus has now fulfilled a fourth requirement of the Passover lamb of not having his bones broken. Okay? Now, again... The Passover lamb is judged by fire. And again, fire always speaks of God's wrath. Jesus is the Passover lamb of God who will be judged for our sin. This is why when Jesus was on the cross, he would say, I thirst. He was feeling the heat, the fire of God's wrath. So then you eat everything you can and whatever is left over, you burn in the fire until none of it remains. Why? Why not save some for the trip the next day? You know? 
Why not keep some of it so you can eat along the way and things like that? Because I believe that God is trying to show them that, for one, they need to trust in him for the total provision. And when it's completely burned up in the fire, what that is saying is that sacrifice completed everything in the way of taking away the sin of the people, speaking of the Messiah who is to come. He sacrificed it all. There was nothing that remained that needed to be burned up later on or cooked later on and things like that. It's interesting because later on in Exodus chapter 16 um, is that, uh, you know, God provides the children of Israel once they're in the wilderness with quail at night and, and bread in the morning, manna. You know, when they woke up in the morning, they saw it and they said, what is this? And that's what manna means. It means, what is this? And so God tells, hey, look, just take enough for the day. Don't try and take more than what you need or whatever. It'll be there in the morning. And if you take more and and you keep it overnight the next morning, um, you know, it's going to breed worms and it's going to stink. And so some people kept it until morning, not trusting what God had to say. And that's exactly what happened. Again, showing the hardness of their heart. Will you not just listen to God? He will be the provider of your every need. So, so God's amazing provision along the way here provides the lamb, everything else. Verse 11 says, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The word Passover here, Hebrew word, Pesach, Pesach. And it means Passover. Never before has this word ever been seen. Nobody really knows what it means until verse 13. When this noun now becomes a verb. And it talks about, in other words, it talks about it, it's in verb form. And it's used to describe the Lord's action in passing over the house. Because he sees the blood. He sees the blood. And so, in other words, this is a word used because the destroyer passes over the dwellings of the Jewish households because they applied the blood on the dwellings. Now, again, it says the Lord's Passover. Notice it doesn't say the Jewish Passover. It's not the Jewish Passover. It is the Lord's. It's Yahweh's Passover. Because it is the Lord who redeems Israel through the blood of the Lamb. The Lord did that. It is the Lord who provides a way of salvation. It's the Lord that does that. It's the Lord who is going to kill the firstborn of Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's grip on the Jews. It is the Lord's Passover. Remember with Abraham, go over here to Genesis chapter 22 just really quick. Remember how Abraham uh, and Isaac were also a picture uh, of the um, uh, crucifixion of Christ? And all of a sudden... God tells Abraham, 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 he says, Take now your son, your only son, verse 2, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So again, Isaac is a father sacrificing his only son in the land of Moriah. Well, and then it ends up being Mount Moriah as we go further on. And all of a sudden we understand the picture there. You have a father who's going to sacrifice his only son. Well, God the Father did that with Jesus. And it's going to be there on Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? Jerusalem. The exact same place. And as they're up there, all of a sudden you have verse 7. It says, And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, my father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
And look what it says here. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for us the lamb for the burnt offering. He will provide for who? Himself. Because the Passover, as this is also speaking of here, as well as this speaking about the crucifixion, is the Lord's Passover. And he'll provide himself the sacrifice. And he did with his son. It's the Lord's Passover. And he did it for us, for our sacrifice. But let's remember, it's still the Lord's Passover. And he says, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. The Jews were to eat this Passover in anticipation of their release from Egypt. Having a belt on means that you have a cloak in which you would tuck into the belt. That's used, you do that when you travel. Sandals were normally worn outdoors, yet they're told to wear them indoors as they eat this. Uh, Passover lamb, staff in their hands to support them for walking long distances, as well as for protection and for herding livestock. All this suggests a willingness to be ready the moment you begin to eat the Passover, to be ready for a long journey because you believe you're about to be delivered. I believe it's the same today as Christians. We pass through this world. We're told that heaven is our citizenship, is in heaven. Our journey here on earth is leading us there. This is why Peter would say, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter calls us sojourners. He calls us pilgrims because earth is not our home. We're just traveling through until we get to our ultimate destination, which is heaven. You shall eat it in haste. Why? They're expecting any moment that the Lord might come and pass over them. At any moment, they may be called to rise up and go out of the land of bondage. In other words, they are expecting the imminent coming of the Lord. Imminent coming of the Lord. I want that to sit with you for a while. Because if you ask me, that's always the way it is with God. We're always supposed to be ready. He can come at any time. I believe as believers in Jesus Christ, as we feed upon the word of God and do what he has called us to do, we are vagabonds, we are pilgrims, we are sojourners. And knowing that at any time, he can come for us, his church. Yeah, the imminent return right there, the imminent coming at any time. We still believe in the imminent coming of the Lord at any time for the rapture of his church. Verse 12. That would have been a great place for, wow. Anyway, whatever. Verse 12. For I passed through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all of God's, e- God's of Egypt. I will ex- execute judgment. I am Yahweh, the Lord. Judgment is not only going to come upon Egypt, Pharaoh and his people, for how horribly they have treated the Jews, but it's also going to come against their gods because as he now brings death to them, there's nothing their gods can do because their gods aren't real. They're all false and there's only one true God and he is going to take the firstborn. Isn't it interesting that God is going to take their firstborn but he also takes his firstborn, Jesus Pastor Lamb speaks of Jesus. Again, the penalty for their unbelief is he takes their firstborn. 
the penalty for mankind's unbelief, their sin, he takes his own firstborn, Jesus. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be a memorial. So this day is to always be remembered. The day that you ate the Passover lamb, applied the blood on your household. Thus, this, this will be how God then releases you from bondage of Egypt. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Every generation shall remember and practice this feast as a reminder of what God has done for you. Now, we're going to skip verses 15 through 20. We're going to start with that next time, okay? This has to do with unleavened bread that starts the next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I want to stay with the the, uh, topic that we have right now. And so we're going to jump down here uh, to verse 21. And it's here that after Moses hears from God of what he's supposed to do, all right, he now gathers the elders and, and also gives them this information and some additional information. Okay, in verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs. Do you guys all have the word lambs, plural? You don't? What does yours say? Passover lamb, just singular. That's a better way of saying it, but we'll see here in a moment, you know, what that really means here. The word here, it says, pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Now, the word lamb here is not the Hebrew word say. When it says, pick out a lamb for yourself, that word is say, okay? That's not the word here. The the Hebrew word for lambs here is tson, okay? Tson, and it means flock in the singular, flock. So this really is pick out, pick out and take from the flock for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb, singular. Now the reason why I think this is important is because nowhere else in Exodus 12 when speaking of the Passover lamb is the word lamb ever mentioned in the plural. Dave, why? I would submit to you because God only had one lamb in mind. When it came to the Passover lamb, that speaks of his son, Jesus, who is the lamb of God. So that word that we have in our Bible says lambs, look it up. It's in the singular and it's not say, it's tzon and it means flock. So pick from the flock, singular, not flocks, plural, flock, singular. And again, when lamb is actually used, it's always in the singular, never in the plural here in Exodus chapter 12. And I do believe it's because God only had one lamb in mind, and that's the lamb of God, Jesus. In verse 22, it says, And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When you look up the word basin, it's really kind of an unfortunate translation. The word basin in the Hebrew is is uh, uh, saf, saf, and it means threshold, or door, or posts, or basin, or bowl, or cup. So 
It depends on the context. But everywhere else in Scripture, when it's talking about the area of the door or entry into a home, the word uh, saf there means threshold. That's important. Because when it talks about the articles in the temple and it starts to talk about the articles about the bowls and the cups and basins, well, yeah, the word uh, saf is used there. Okay? But in its context, you, you know what is being spoken of at that point. But any context around a doorway, it always speaks of the threshold or the doorpost itself, okay? Or the door. But here, because of what we're going to go over, we know in its context, in order to make the type or the picture of Christ suffering on the cross complete, it has to mean threshold. Threshold is the wood or stone piece running along the bottom of the doorway, which when you cross over to enter a home, the same word is used in Judges 19.27 and 2 Kings 12.9. In Judges 19.27, when her master rose in the morning, opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold, the bottom area of the door. 1 Kings 14.17, then Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, went, came to Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. That means when she opened the door and crossed over that threshold, that's when her child died. Threshold is the translation here. And it needs to be here because it completes the picture that God is trying to show us at the first Passover. No direction is given about putting the blood on the saf or the threshold for the reason that the blood was already there. The lamb would be slain at the door or the threshold of the doorway, then applied on the lentil in the two doorposts. And when you see it this way, that's when you see this. The sign of the cross. Sign of the cross. Remember the lentil. You're standing here. You take the hyssop and you take it right there at the threshold of the door where you killed the lamb and the blood spilled out right there. And you go on the lentil. And then you do the two doorposts, and you keep on doing that till you splash enough on there. And as you do that, you can see the sign of the cross. Now, years ago, like over 20 years ago, before we had the technology just be throwing things up and, and things like that, I actually took an easel, and I had a big white uh, sheet of paper on the easel right there, and I got paint, red paint, and so I did it in front of the people there, and I go, it's, it's taking the paint down here and going boom, boom, boom. And as you do this and hit like this, it would splatter in, in that sign of a cross, just like you see there. And it also splattered on the stage. It was the worst thing I'd ever, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a horrible decision afterwards, but it, it get, got the people's attention. It got the picture across, you know. Um, but what's interesting here is that you have the sign of the cross, This is how Jesus would die some 1,500 years later. It's showing the crucifixion of the ultimate lamb. That's God who knows the end from the beginning. I love stuff like that because it just builds one brick after another why I can trust the word of God. There's no other religious writing out there that comes close to doing these kinds of things. And so 
the crucifixion. You see the crown of thorns where Jesus would represent the blood on the lentil, the the head of the door. And the blood on the doorpost represents the nails in his hands. And the blood at the front of the door and the threshold represents the nail in his feet. And notice that the destroyer, the angel of death, will will not pass over you because you're Jewish. He passes over because he sees the blood. If the Egyptians had overheard and said, oh, I'm, I'm... killing a, a lamb myself. I'm putting it on there. I'm, I, I believe exactly what God is telling them that they need to do, whether they understood or not. It was pointing to Jesus. The destroyer would also have seen the applied blood on an Egyptian household and passed over as, as well. Why? Because they would have seen the blood. Just like Jesus today, it's not enough that you are born in a Christian home or you come here to this church, you personally need to apply the blood upon your dwelling, this vessel, your body, and receive Jesus. And when you do, when you die, guess what? The angel of death or the destroyer passes over you because you have the the, uh, Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee. And so death can't come for you. Death can't come from you. And look at the hyssop branch. The blood was to be applied by hyssop. The hyssop branch is not to be connected to, is not connected to the lamb. The hyssop branch is connected to the blood. And so the hyssop branch points to the blood being applied. I would also submit to you that the hyssop could be speaking of us. Okay, that we need to, as human vessels, as something that is born of the earth, you know, as earthen vessels and everything else, need to apply the blood of what Jesus did in our lives. When you look up hyssop in the Bible, it's used 12 times. Um, in First Kings, it mentions it can grow out of a wall. Uh, when uh, hyssop is mentioned, it speaks of, of purification. King David, when speaking of his sin before God, says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, it's interesting that, uh, that um, with the hyssop branch stretching it to the doorposts and everywhere, how that also speaks of Christ in John nineteen twenty nine. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Again, pointing Jesus. This speaks of Jesus. I want you to see these other um, pictures as well. It's no coincidence, if you ask me, that it paints a picture of the crucifixion. Interesting that God not only pointed Jesus as a Passover lamb, but how he was going to die by crucifixion. This is very, very significant because Jews did not kill people by crucifixion. They did it by stoning. Crucifixion would not be known into the world for another thousand years. (laughs) So they have this picture. They don't really know what that means per se. We do. They see a cross. They don't know that that speaks of an ultimate lamb, the son of God, who's going to be crucified for their sin. They don't, they don't know what that means, okay? Because crucifixion was not known for another thousand years, and it wasn't invented by the Romans. It was invented by the Persians. The Persians believed earth, fire, water were sacred elements, and all customary methods of execution defiled these elements, 
So when the Persians developed a method of crucifying victims above the ground by impaling them on a pole above the earth where they were left to die, the Romans came along later and said, wow, that's a, that's a great way to exact punishment, but we want to do better than that. We don't want to hasten their death. Let's prolong their death. So let's put a crossbar there and let them be able to hang longer so we can create more agony that will last about three or four days. This is a form of death predicted for the suffering Messiah, Messiah all the way back to Exodus, 1,500 years before the actual event of the crucifixion of Jesus. That's God, and that's amazing. Now, one other thing before we close here that I want you to be able to see here. Notice in verse 3 of Exodus 12. I want you to notice something here that in verse 3 it says, A lamb. On the 10th of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. In verse 4, it says, the lamb. And if the household is too small for the lamb, and then verse 5, your lamb. Your lamb should be without blemish. I believe the order is quite telling. Before we know the Lord, he's just a lamb. Once we recognize our need for a savior, he is the lamb. And once you receive Jesus as your Lord and savior, he becomes your lamb. It's personal. He's your personal savior, amen? Let's pray, let's pray. 